Good morning. It's so good to see you here. You've recovered from 4th of July and providing comfort to all of your pets who were deeply distraught this week. I experienced Oklahoma fireworks in my neighborhood for the first time. Wow. Pretty spectacular, guys. Yes, you all are patriots of the highest order. Wow. What a gospel reading this morning. My goodness. The first half of that gospel reading really um, grabbed my heart this morning as I read it and sat with it, especially as we're continuing to talk about the gospel according to, and we're talking through these uh, minor prophets. Um, of course, Jesus used the language of prophet, right? He says, the prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. What's amazing to me about that first half of the gospel reading is this story of Jesus returning to Nazareth. Has anybody in the room besides me been bothered by the fact that God showed up in the flesh and didn't do anything for 30 years? Is it just me? 30 years, chilling, family business, three years, fireworks, gone. He goes back to this place that had him for his entire childhood, young adulthood, adult life, if we could use our imaginations and stretch it a little bit, he shows up in town and what? He's rejected. See, in this sense, Jesus is continuing this long prophetic tradition of rejection. A long prophetic tradition tradition of rejection. But what's amazing is think about the work of the prophets. Prophets are always working on God's behalf to let the people know that they've rejected God. And so in this one story, we see not only a classical case of the rejection of a prophet, we actually see them rejecting God. Because in Christ, we not only have the prophet with a capital P, we see Jesus, we see God. Not Zeus, we see God. And this is the most radical thing I can say the entire day, is that we worship, we just sang these words, great are you, Lord, but he's not great like Zeus is great. See, he's not great like a classic God, like this power that we associate with gods. See, he's rejectable. This is the most radical thing I can say this morning. God is rejectable. Jesus can be dissed by those closest to him. As a matter of fact, it says at the end of that section in Mark 6, it says that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. And the Greek language there actually hints at the idea he was surprised. This is another big problem. Wait, God can be surprised. Zeus sort of typifies, I think, this great character of the pantheon of the gods. He's the god of the gods. He's the one who, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm not an expert in Greek mythology, so somebody, there probably is somebody in the room who is, so feel free to jump out and yell at me uh, mid-sermon. But right, he takes Prometheus and he thrusts Prometheus basically into the darkest fires of hell because Prometheus tried to have compassion on human beings. This is the God of antiquity here. This is not Jesus who shows up trying to help his people and they reject him trying to give him help. He's trying to give them help. 
And what does he do? Here's the thing. I would have been, just remember that other story in the Gospels where the disciples are like, all right, let's call down fire. Anybody besides me? Like, I came back home. I'm like the man. I'm going to heal some of you now. Get ready. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to teach you things you've never heard before. Oh, you're not interested. You're all dead. Like, that's, right? I'm exaggerating. It's hyperbole. I don't have that in my heart, I don't think. Right? But there's this, there's this impulse in us that we're very, very put out, not only when people fail to accept us, but certainly when they flat out reject us. When they question our credentials. <laughs> Wait a minute. Don't I know you? <laughs> who, who do you think you are coming to me? Right? And what does Jesus do? He walks away. And he walks away. He's not only the God we can reject, he's the God we can sadden. I mean, maybe one of the most radical things the prophets will say through all of the minor prophets and even the major prophets is that God cries. In other words, God feels. God cares. In some way, God is vulnerable to the way that we treat him. This is radical talk. This morning, we're going to consider the gospel according to Micah. Micah is a prophet sometime in the 8th century, pre-exile, so Israel's still inhabiting the Palestine region. They haven't been dragged off by Assyrians or Babylonians at this point. He's a contemporary with Isaiah, Hosea, Amos. He would have been working and speaking during the time of kings, most famous one you'd probably know would be Hezekiah. And like all prophets, Micah uses metaphor. He uses the language of metaphor so brilliantly because he wants to move people beyond merely identifying things, defining things. Language that is metaphorical is language that's spacious. Metaphor gives us possibility. Metaphor gives us the responsibility of interpretation. And by using metaphor, the prophets want us to experience God himself, the presence of God, the possibility of God. One of my favorite guys, and you know I talk about him a lot, Eugene Peterson. He says this, he says, prophets use words to remake the world. What was Micah's world? Well, this is very interesting because Micah's world was on the one hand incredibly idolatrous, but on the other hand was incredibly prosperous. Does it sound like someplace you know? Incredibly idolatrous on the one hand, but prosperous on the other hand. I'm going to very quickly just highlight what I think are the three major issues that Micah is going after. We want to just quickly say that the literary structure of the book, the book is seven chapters long, and I don't want to bore you with details, but just if you go back to read it, which I'd encourage you to do, not while I'm preaching, but later in your in-depth study, it's, it's basically three cycles of judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation, judgment and salvation. So the first issue, if we, if we want to crack open our phones, the book of Micah chapter 1, thank I heard one person, the minor chuckle there, you could crack open your Bibles too, Micah chapter 1, let's look at verse 5, 
All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Hmm. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her images, her idols, shall be beaten into pieces and all her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For as the wages of a prostitute she gathered them and as the wages of a prostitute they shall again be used. And all the people of God said, Amen. <laughs> Whoa. Hello, Micah. Nice to meet you. My name's Mark, and you clearly mean business. This first issue, this, uh, they're living in great prosperity and riches, but from God's perspective, things are grim. Things are deeply problematic. Number one, because of idolatry. Idolatry. This is what's happening in Samaria. This is what's happening in Jerusalem. And he brings us the metaphor of a prostitute. And of course, without, I'll let your imaginations do the math here. I always, for some reason, and maybe I'll, I'll confess this to my own embarrassment, when I always thought of Israel's prostitution, for some reason, and I feel dumb, but this is, I can say this out loud. Like it dawned on me this week, Israel's the prostitute. Like I always thought of Israel as like running out and finding the prostitute. I know I'm the only one in the room, but I had this moment where I was like, oh, duh, Israel's the prostitute, right? And I realized a prostitute in this metaphorical sense is using their body in ways that are not intended for profit. And if we know anything about prostitution, it tends to be, and not stereotyping all prostitutes here, so please, I'm not wanting to judge prostitutes when I say this, but generally, you get into this profession for desperate reasons. In other words, it's your last option. You're not like, well, let's try prostitution, and if that doesn't work out, we'll go to school. Like, that's not how that flows, right? Not making fun of it. It's an awkward moment here. But just kind of saying, this is really desperate stuff. So in other words, this is an attempt to save yourself out of a bad situation. Right. And I'm thinking of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Israel's idolatry on some level, it's certainly a desire to conform to the nations around her. So let's sit with that for a moment. We yell at our kids. We don't yell at them. I'm sorry. We've never yelled at our kids. We talk to our kids about the dangers of peer pressure. I'm wondering how many of us have enough self-awareness to think of the ways in which we succumb to peer pressure ourselves as adults. Of course, this could also speak to this sort of sexual intimacy outside of marriage could also be speaking to the desire for pleasure apart from commitment. The desire for pleasure in our lives without the responsibility that pleasure requires.
I can't think, I'm trying again, of a situation in which we can experience pleasure without responsibility. And our attempts to do so are almost always harmful to us. Now, if we go to the second chapter of Micah, I think we find our second issue at hand is beyond idolatry. Chapter 2, verse 1, Alas, for those who devise wickedness and evil deeds on their beds, when the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power. Now look at this second verse. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress householder and house, people and their inheritance. So if the first issue is the issue of idolatry, I think this second issue is one of greed. This is one of ambition to acquire. This is one in which oppression is the means of acquisition. Especially if we read down further, the oppression of women and children. That word power pops up at the end of the first verse. They do these things because it is in their power to do it. This is, of course, why it's a prosperous culture. People are prospering at the expense of other people. They're they're prospering through oppression, through ambition that is unchecked by any sort of ethic or morality. So they're not only idolaters. They're not only going out trying to save themselves, experience the pleasure and the joys of ecstasy without the responsibility and commitment that Yahweh would call for. They are also people of greed who are using the power that they do have to oppress others. And the third thing, If we look down a little bit further, verse 6, and nobody better say amen when I read verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Well, in this section, Micah gets into the issues in which Israel is trying to control the prophets, trying to control the message. Because the message of the prophets has been consistent. Your unfaithfulness to Yahweh is coming to an end. Your whoring about after other nations is going to come to bear on you. And this idea that God will judge is one that none of the Israelites wanted to hear. Pretty understandable, right? Don't come to me, preacher, with another negative sermon. And this is why we chose to preach through the minor prophets all summer long. (laughs) Come on out and hear this wonderful message of judgment. And so what do they try to do? They try to control the prophets. They saw religion as a way to maintain the status quo, not to be challenged, transformed, convicted, and called into a higher level of humanness. That was not the purpose of religion. Religion was there to serve their ends, not God's. And so this trifecta of idolatry, greed, and control, I wonder how many of us, as I'm writing them down in my notes, I'm like, oh man, Nothing like getting convicted in your office while you're typing your sermon notes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Idolatry, greed, and control. 
Now look, I even, this 11th verse sums up the, the control rather nice. Micah says, if someone were to go about uttering empty falsehoods, saying, I'll preach to you of wine and strong drink. I'm like, amen. Uh, and such a one would be the preacher for this people. Now, now again, please remember, this is metaphorical language. So wine and strong drink is language for prosperity. It's language for abundance. It's, you're not drinking water with your meal. You're drinking wine and maybe strong drink. You're flush with cash that way. So he's saying, these are the kind of people that as long as the preacher comes and talks to them about prosperity, we're going to be amen in that joker off the pulpit. Don't come and tell us that God is going to hold us accountable. Don't come and tell us that God actually is offended at what we've done. Please don't tell us God's bringing destruction. Don't tell us that. Mike is kind of getting to the language to say, there could be horses and chariots outside your town, and this is the kind of preaching you'd want. What's amazing is knowing that Israel is in this position, and mind you, if David is king somewhere around 1,000, and this is somewhere in the mid-700s or so, I mean, this is about as long as America's been around just to give ourselves a frame of reference here, okay? So this is like a 250-year-old nation that for all of its 250 years has basically at best been syncretistic. In other words, they've mixed religions. <laughs> Did anybody besides me have the idea that like, for the most part, Israel, like they were really great, they worshiped God, and then they had these moments where they slipped into idolatry? And it's like, no, no, the whole time. There, do you remember the story, maybe you don't, um, of, of David being hunted down by Saul and his wife Michal sets up a, a, like a dummy in the bed so David can slip out in the night through the window and, and her dad can't find him? It's a great story. It's, it's like drama, soap opera stuff, right? Dad's trying to kill your husband. He's coming to the house with his brutes to come and take your husband out. So you tell your husband, quick, jump out the window and you put a dummy in the bed. But the thing is, here's the thing. Michal does not put like pillows in the bed. She puts an idol in the bed. And the idol is the size of a man. <laughs> remember the story of the golden calf? I'm sure we all remember that story. This is now like headline stuff, right? Golden calf, what happens? They make a golden calf. And if you read the story closely in Exodus 32, what does it say? It says that the next day, now that the calf is up and cast and polished and everything, they're gonna have a feast, listen, to Jehovah. <laughs> what? Did you ever notice that? In other words, they're not going to have a feast to the golden calf. They're going to have a feast to Yahweh using the golden calf. After 250 years of this, I would have been done if I was God. I would have been like, you know what? I've saved you. I've rescued you. I've provided for you. I've had miracles for you. I've sent you prophets. I'm done. But what does it say at the very beginning of Micah? And this is the key verse for everything I want to say this morning. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And here's the phrase, verse 3. For lo, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places. 
of the earth. After centuries of unfaithfulness and rejection, I think I would have built up at best indifference toward Israel and at worst, like loathing. And what does it say? It says, God comes down out of his place. And this is the surprise. The surprise is the God of Israel is a God who moves. The God of Israel is a God who moves. Unlike the gods of the other nations, this is a God who moves. Because God's movement reveals humility. God's movement reveals vulnerability. God's movement reveals he's going to try to fix this situation. He comes out of his space toward them because he's trying to stop Israel from this self-destructive path that Israel is on, despite the fact that Israel's determined to be on it. Psalm 115 has, I think it's a little bit humorous, but in verse 3 of Psalm 115, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Look at this. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. They have feet but do not walk. They make no sound in their throats. Verse 8 scares me. Those who make them are like them, and so are all who trust in them. In other words, idolatry is dehumanizing. Idolatry appeals to our sensuality while deadening it at the same time. Our senses, friends, reveal the image of God. We are made in his likeness with eyes and ears and a nose and everything else the psalmist lists here. And when we worship idols, we become like idols who have all of the parts, but none of them work. God is a God who, unlike these gods, who can't smell, who can't feel, who can't make noise in his throat, God is just the opposite. He's a God who, when he sees trouble, can get up and go. He's a God who can come down from his place and be among us. That's who God is. Think about this. You might remember the story when the Philistines capture the Ark of God and they bring it into their temple. The Philistines worship a god named Dagon, the fish god. And what happens? They bring the ark in, and Dagon falls down. A statue falls down and breaks. What was the conclusion? The conclusion was that the god of Israel had defeated Dagon. Why? Because that joker does not move on his own. When that God showed up, when Jehovah showed up, Dagon fell over. This is the God who moves. Origen's comments on Micah and the movement of God are very insightful. He says, therefore, God is said to descend when he deigns to have concern for human frailty. In other words, the frailty of humanity is when you start to worship creation 
you cease to be fully human. And it's in God's love and concern for us that he comes down. He recognizes our increasing frailty and our limitations, and he cares for us. <laughs> in chapter 3 of Micah, there's a phrase there that's pretty interesting to me. It says here, let me see if I have the right. It's, he talks about uh, three, you know what, it would be better if I took better notes. It really would. Well, somebody will find it and say, there it is. Um, he has this phrase there. He says, you walk haughtily. They have this really interesting image, right, of Israel strutting about Israel. I don't know if that makes any sense, right? It's like the nation of Israel. They're so confident. And I think they're confident because of their prosperity. And they walk around haughtily, the prophet says. And I think in verse 11 of chapter 3, it has this phrase where it says, its priests teach for a price. Its prophets give oracles for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, surely the Lord is with us. No harm will come to us. What a contrast between this haughty Israel and God coming down really reluctantly as a judge. Abraham Heschel is a great uh, Jewish theologian. He calls God the reluctant judge. If you look over at the sixth chapter in our last cycle of judgment, Micah 6, the first verse, hear what the Lord says. Now, he's already been talking all kinds of judgment, and God keeps coming back, and he says, Rise, please, your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. The Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with his people. And look at this third verse. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. This is not a God who's eager to wipe people out. This is not a God who's looking to just get his pound of flesh because you've been doing this to me for centuries. I'm done with you. That's not this God. This is God saying, why are we doing this, Israel? You have this image of Israel strutting about and God cautiously, haltingly coming towards Israel saying, has it come to this? Not once, not twice, three times. And this is where we start to I hopefully have our hearts moved this morning by this metaphorical imagery of a God who doesn't come plowing in with great power and vengeance to people who have stubbornly and constantly been a thorn in his side. That's not what we see here. We see a God who's reluctant, who's cautious, who's slowly coming at them, saying, why are we doing this? This is not Zeus. This is not the classic images that we have, and even, let's be honest, our own cultural images of power. That's not what this is. This is a God who looks at his children and says, you are dehumanizing yourselves. You're stripping yourselves of your very life. I have to move toward you. 
ancient Near East gods, they tended to be passive. They would sit in their thrones. Their disposition would be to be angry and full of uh, displeasure. So you'd have feasts regularly to try and make them happy. This is not that God. This is a God whose disposition, whose essence is love, is kindness, is compassion, is gentleness, is long-suffering nature, century after century, till finally he says, I have to move toward them because they're not moving toward me. In this act of judgment, known as the exile, we see God's mercy because he's refusing to let Israel live in the denial of her calling. Can I stop and just make a little pastoral comment that might be a tidbit? Of all the times in my life that my life has been hard and uncomfortable, it's because in some way God has not been able to get my attention otherwise. It's just my story. And God's not getting my attention because he's annoyed with me. He's getting my attention because he believes in me. He's getting my attention because he said, I created you for so much more than this. And I've been trying, but you're not listening. Micah's name means, who is a God like unto Jehovah? What sort of God would do this? Be so patient, strong to take action, but in ways that are for my good, even if it's painful. Who is like unto you? His plan, ultimately, he is going to save Israel, whether Israel appeases him or not, whether they offer the right sacrifices or not, whether they show up in the temple the right times or not, God is going to save and rescue Israel. And that's so encouraging. I love the fact that the very last section of Micah, chapter 7, if you want to look at it, the 18th verse begins with a phrase that really hints at Micah's name. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression of the remnant of your possession. Who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing clemency. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Who is a God like this? who while he's announcing judgment can't stop himself from announcing salvation. It's almost as if God says, you've been bad, you've sinned, you've transgressed, I've got to judge. And then God interrupts himself and says, but I'm going to save you. I'm going to be there. And then God says, no, but I'm going to judge you. I'm going to set this to rights. But God interrupts himself again and says, but I'm going to save you. And the third time he says, yes, but you've been so unfaithful. You're destroying yourself. You're shaming the name. I've got to judge. And then finally God comes and interrupts himself a third time and says, but I'm going to show compassion. I'm going to restore all of this because I don't delight. I don't relish in being angry. If anything, I delight in getting people off the hook. What kind of a God is this? It's the God we see in Paul's famous hymn, 
of Philippians 2, where he describes Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. How about the death that he felt in Nazareth when all of his friends and family were rejecting him and disrespecting him? And he walks away, ultimately, to a cross. Think about Christ's entry into Jerusalem. We see the one who came out of his place. This is the one Micah spoke of. When he said God is coming down out of his place, he was talking about a God who would empty himself of his godness and take on our form. Micah 1.3 talks about Jesus. Micah 1.3 is saying there's something about God's people that God finds irresistible. There's something about the people of God that mobilizes God. The gods of the world that can't move are really at a disadvantage here. Because the God of heaven and earth is the God who can come to us. And he did come to us. But he didn't come in the way that we would expect. He came not with an army, but he came on a donkey. He didn't come into Jerusalem with soldiers. He came into Jerusalem with singers. This Jesus who emptied himself, he took on the form of a slave. He embraced the limitations of human likeness and went to the darkest place of our sin. Friends, divine strength is what the world calls weakness. Divine wisdom is what we think of as foolishness. Like Moses, who had a stutter. Like Jacob, who had a limp. The things that we call limitations are actually Christ-likeness. What is your limp this morning? What is your stutter this morning? The God who saves is not the God who runs in with power. He is the God who shows up on the sly in weakness in the form of a slave. He's the God who shows up in an obscure Palestinian town and for 30 years does nothing. This is our God. This is the God who comes out of his place. He's not the God of wrath and punitive judgment. He's the God of clemency. He's the God of steadfast love. He's the God who comes to us. You see, Christ-likeness is what it looks like when darkness is actually our light. The dark place that you're in can be the place of your greatest illumination. It's what it looks like when the place of defeat is actually the place of victory and deliverance. It's when the place of judgment, Babylon, Rome, Calvary, has become the place of our rescue and our redemption. And so this is the gospel according to Micah. The story of our salvation God leaves home, alone in the dark, looking just like his father and walking with a limp. Let's bow our heads.
Father, this morning, for all of us who feel the conviction of your Holy Spirit, because in our own way, we've gone after other gods. In our own way, we live and we struggle and we fail with greed, materialism. In our own way, we try to control situations and other people. and We even spin you and our faith to our own advantage. God, I pray you'd have mercy on us this morning. I pray that we, reading these stories, would benefit by your grace. I pray for every person who feels limited, who feels like their life is a limp right now, who feels incapacitated like a Moses with a stutter. I pray today that you would open our eyes to see Jesus this morning. Jesus who comes out of his place in the form of a slave, comes out of his place not with the power of Zeus, but with compassion that cannot be stopped. Lord, I pray that in some small way today that our hearts would be shifted that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that as we think differently about power, as we think differently, God, we'd stop wanting to strut and we'd be okay with a limp. Help us to that end because to the extent that we're limping around is the extent that we look like you. So we ask for your help. We ask for your presence to be strong among us. In Jesus' name, amen.